Hi, and welcome to episode 166 of the IOPN's We Do Science podcast, the Institute of Performance Nutrition's podcast. And I am Laurent Barnack, Dr. Laurent Barnack. Now, today I had another awesome conversation. Of course, I do. I always have awesome conversations. I love having these discussions with my guests. As you know, we're called We Do Science, and primarily our podcasts are focused on looking at the evidence, the science, typically published research with the very practitioners or researchers conducting that a laboratory or applied in the field-based research. But recently, I have also started doing a sort of a mini sub-series, a special edition called In the Trenches, where... I interview, speak with a variety of experienced, successful, elite-level, primarily practitioners, and we talk about them, their their career path, how they got to where they are, and their their perspectives, how they see things through the lens of the guest. And of course, that's important because you know, in the real world, in applied practice, as you'll hear me say many times, theory is rarely, if ever clearly articulated in the real world and it's a pretty crazy chaotic world that we actually practice in and that's to be distinguished from the tightly controlled environments we deliberately create to conduct research within a laboratory or indeed what you see that's been carefully written and edited and published into a book or a journal or a paper or whatever or into a presentation you might hear within the lecture room or at a conference and so on. These are very very static things that are not particularly contextually dynamic in a way that you will find on a day-to-day basis in your practice with athletes or teams. So anyway, that's why I'm also doing these In the Trenches episodes. Now, today I had a really great conversation with a practitioner and researcher, Dr. James Morhen. You'll You'll know the name if you follow this podcast because James has been a guest on this podcast a few years ago now, I think, or a year and a half ago or or so, where we looked at his PhD research into nutrition for rugby players. And that was an awesome conversation. If like me, you're, you love rugby and work in, in rugby, then that's a must listen to podcast. But James, Dr. Morhen is an experienced practitioner working in a wide range of sports himself, from individuals to athletes. And we delve into his career, where he started, the unique path that he followed to arrive at where he is at now as himself, a very accomplished, successful practitioner. But also, he has published a book called The Performance Nutritionist, which is essentially a collection of interviews with a variety of practitioners from early to mid-career, including one or two of our own graduates at the IOPN who've gone on to pursue more academic training and education. Um, but what this book does is is it looks at the insights, the reflections and advice from practitioners working in elite sport. And this is a great book. It's very much an extension of, of these conversations I've already been having with practitioners. And indeed, you will hear me interviewing some of these practitioners or some of them have been guests actually on my podcast and or lecturers on our IOPN diploma program. So either which way, this is both for me personally and professionally of great interest, but I know it will be for you, those of you that are interested in 
initiating your career as a performance nutritionist or, you know, I'm most definitely not early or even mid-career. I'm quite well into my career as a practitioner and I got huge benefits from reading James's book. So I, I recommend that you listen to this podcast, you you enjoy what it is that we discuss, the challenges, the insights, the many different perspectives of the various practitioners and of course from James himself is all of huge value and maybe a few tidbits from me too, which I throw in as well, just to add to all of that. But before you you guys have a listen to this conversation, this rather special in the trenches episode, don't forget please to come check out what we do at the IOPM, which is all about the training and development of sport and exercise nutritionists, performance nutritionists beyond either their university education and or beyond their professional grounding in things like strength conditioning, whether you're a nutritionist, a sports scientist, uh, you might even have your master's or whatever in sport and exercise nutrition. We're about taking it to the next level by bridging that gap between science and practice. A lot of the things that we that we talk about in this conversation today are the very things that we focus on in our program, which was the focus of my own doctorate, which was all about bridging the gap between science and practice. And that is fundamentally what underpins we do at the IOPN. And of course, our diploma, our 100% online diploma is all about that. So go check it out at www.theiopn.com. And the other thing that we have is our software for sport and exercise nutritionists. It's a unique digital toolbox, if you like, that enables practitioners like me and many of you to get the most out of running and organizing your practice, which in today's ever demanding world for a digital online presence is pretty critical. But we also have developed tools there to enable you to have the highest level of impact with individual athletes or teams, coaching tools, behavior change tools, dietary analysis tools, all sorts of stuff is in there. Just go check it out. You get a free 14-day trial. We keep evolving and upgrade it. So even if you've had a look in the past, it is almost certainly radically evolved since you last had a look to include the latest development, which we've literally just launched in the last month or so, which is the client app now available on portable devices like iPhones, analog phones, that sort of thing. And that's all about the client and their ability to engage with you as a practitioner. We've now developed those tools. So you now have your interface, your web app, and now the mobile app for your clients, for your athletes. We really feel this is a game changer and there will be even more upgrades throughout the year, but right now it is a fantastic tool. So please go check that out at www.theiopn.com where you can also learn about our podcast. So anyway, that's enough of me blabbing on. I hope you enjoy this conversation about Dr. Morhen and also in general, his book, The Performance Nutritionist. And there are many valuable golden bullets, if you like, of information that came out of that are now coming over to you. Enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. I say welcome back. I haven't done a podcast in a while, and that's because I've been really busy doing one or two of my other jobs, so to speak, as a practitioner. So uh, it's sort of a it's a great opportunity that I have today to get into this new in the trenches focus. 
these special editions that I've I've done a few of and intend to do more. But actually, my guest today is a bit of a master of this actual topic because that's what he recently wrote a book about. But he is no stranger to We Do Science, Dr. James Moreham. Welcome back, James. Hiya, thank you. How are we? Yeah, we're good. We're good. In fact, we've just been talking a bit offline about stuff and half of which we should have recorded, of course, but hopefully we'll bring most of that back up, if not more, and really get into this topic that I wanted to, to get into today, which is if people ask us what we do for a living, you presumably will answer, uh, at least on a sort of a simple response would be, I'm a performance nutritionist. That's what I will tell people that I do. Obviously, and I say obviously, it's not obvious, it's only obvious to you or I, that that answer, it, it, it means different things to different people, but even to ourselves as, as practitioners, and we're constantly questioning what it means to be a performance nutritionist and what that looks like to be successful as a performance nutritionist. And indeed, what does that word success or successful even mean, which is something I want to really get into. But I say welcome back because... Of course, we did a podcast back in, I think it was, was it May 2020? Yeah. Episode 140 was about your PhD work on nutrition and rugby league players, which is an episode I highly recommend everyone goes back and, and listen to if you're interested in rugby nutrition generally, which is an area both James and I are passionate about, despite having worked a lot in football, of course, which is one of those bizarre angles that you find yourself in, which I'm looking forward to getting into, which of course is what's so great about being a performance nutritionist. You're not necessarily pigeonholed into one specific area of practice, or at least you shouldn't pigeonhole yourself, which is again an area I want to get into. But before we really get into this topic of the performance nutritionist and particularly what makes a performance nutritionist successful, James, just tell us a little bit more about yourself your past. We'll come back and actually talk about your career as the first reflection, I think. So don't, don't go too deep into this, but it would be good as a, an introduction. And then we'll get into, you know, why this book? Why did you even write this book that we're going to get into? Yeah. Okay. So a brief background then, um, 18 to 21 years old, had no ambition of going to university at all. And so embarked on a career with my snowboard over in Canada. And I, I basically lived in the mountains for two winter seasons back to back with the third season in Poland, kind of heading up a team of snowboard instructors. And then the summers, it was all about working at Pizza Hut as a waiter and saving up my tips and traveling the world. So Southeast Asia got hit quite hard. And that was basically three years of my life. And then it was only at 21 where I was mature enough to make the decision that I wanted to go to university. And then that's where I embarked on my career at Liverpool John Moore's uni up in Liverpool and I stayed there for nine years for a third of my life. I lived in the city centre, I did my undergraduate degree, rolled straight onto a master's in sport physiology. For me at the time it was that natural transition onto the PhD which was a an unbelievable process and yeah one I look back with fond memories of and kind of completed that four and a half year PhD journey up in up in Liverpool that was kind of the academics and then on the outside of that it was then building and generating that applied career in sport which yeah. has seen me bounce around a few organizations yeah well we're gonna we're gonna explore some of those because of course there's lessons to be learned from all of those experiences but I'm really interested to know what was the catalyst 
the trigger into making that decision to go to university and, and do this? You know, presumably you were up a mountain somewhere, you'd just done some half pipes or whatever it is that you were doing and and having pretty nice life, I imagine. I, I love being up in the mountains, so it's not a bad place mm. to be. But you say you you matured a bit from all those experiences. Is that Was that a major player in, in your catalyst? Yeah, I think it was. Look, I was the first one to admit to myself at 18 that am I old enough, mature enough mentally to go and study and commit Almost, you know, you're writing a contract with yourself for three years to go and study and commit yourself somewhere. Fundamentally, I wasn't, I wasn't ready for it then. So I, I needed to go and get some of some of this stuff out of my system and just be an idiot for three years and just enjoy myself. And you know, I didn't pick up a pen to study for three years. It was all about checking the snow report and what was the weather like. And that was me for three years. And it was amazing. But I think. Those of us that work in sport deep down, I had this conversation with someone recently and I, I wonder whether we are all failed athletes deep down because we've clearly got an innate passion and drive to want to su- support athletes in getting better. And that was something that I wanted to do at, at 21. I, I kind of had done the snowboarding and then looked back at myself and wished that I'd carried on playing rugby. You know, could I have made it? All of those questions that you ask yourself. And so for me, Okay, well, if I'm not going to play professionally, the next best is to try and support athletes in a professional setup. And then it was, okay, well, what degree program do I need to do? And for me, it was sports science and it was working as part of that multidisciplinary team behind in the background. And that's where at 21, it was like, right, I either do this now or I'm never going to go and I will forever be living in the mountains and bouncing around countries, which don't get me wrong, was an amazing time, but I just had that drive at 21 to, you know, go and do dad proud, go and get a degree and go and study and and learn and get back into academia. So that's why that decision got made at 21. It's interesting because there are many reasons why people will go to university, of course. They're, you know, it's the, well, I've, I've got to go get a proper job, quotes unquote, proper, you know, what does that mean? Doctor, lawyer, accountant, engineer, you know, sports science, what is that? What are you going to be? You're going to work as a lifeguard? Are you going to be helping people lift weights in a gym? Or are you going to go work at a Premier League, you know, football club? And as what, as you say, and of course, at the start at that point, you have absolutely no idea where your journey is going to take you. How could you? So you started that journey at a certain point in your life with a certain understanding of what some alternatives could be albeit up a mountain doing some things that people pay to go do, but you had that thought process, but you didn't know what direction you were going to take within sports science, did you? What led you more in this direction as a performance nutritionist? Yeah, so first and foremost, sports science undergrad program allowed me to obviously study a number of components of sports science, which then, if I'm honest, it was more of strength and conditioning at the time that was kind of getting me quite excited about what that could do as a career and that's when I kind of did a strength and conditioning internship at Liverpool John Moores actually underneath uh, Dr Carl Lang and Evans so Carl was running this internship program and so I I did that for a number of years and if if I'm honest back then it was really right I'm going to be an SSC coach this is where I'm going to kind of have a career and then I did the masters in sport physiology which again there was no real nutrition focus or 
SNC focus. It was quite a, an open masters. But then I started getting some really good lectures off of Graham and James and the way that they coach and teach, the passion that they have for the industry. And it was really like, wow, yeah, you know, look at the impact that nutrition can have on an athlete, you know, winning performances or, you know, body composition manipulation, whatever it might be. And that's where I got interested in that world. And then it was very, very persistent with Graham and James. They share an office now, but they didn't at the time. And it, it was just a case of constantly knocking on Graham's door, asking him about, you know, nutrition PhDs. Is there anything floating? Is there anything about? And I, I should say prior to that, that, you know, I'd, I'd volunteered and put my hand up on numerous occasions to help out current PhD students in the lab. I remember you know, holding VO2 max lines for Dr. George Wilson when he was running utilization stuff with his jockeys. And I, I wasn't doing anything apart from holding a tube, but I was in the lab and looking at, you know, some of these projects that were going on and thinking, ah, oh, you know, is, is that the next step? Has Have I got the minerals to study a PhD? You know, bear in mind five years prior, it was just strapping in the bindings and going down the red run and enjoying a bit of snowboarding. And uh, I look back and, yeah, could I have done a PhD at 21? Definitely not. It was definitely, it was all about that journey and progression through the academia. That's where kind of end of the master's in sport physiology, the nutrition interest came about, really came about, yeah. It's interesting. There's some correlations here, actually, to what you were doing, I think, in the mountains and on the snow and and so on. I think, you, you know, we think of a journey, particularly when you're early career, young practitioners to a certain extent you have to sort of flow in a certain direction that is assisted by if you want to call it this certain amount of natural forces are at play aren't there and of course you you are given a number of options and you'll take the ones that you fancy and a big part of that will be passion that other people have like oh come this way this way is really cool this is a great way to go it and i think that just shows you the the importance that just that one potentially small element can have in leading you down a completely different path and or a bad path, of course, because some people are not necessarily passionate in the right way. They may be doing it for different reasons, you know, for financial gain or, or whatever. So it is a, we can get into some of that in a bit, but, but yeah, I mean, the listeners will be familiar with Graham and James. We've particularly Graham had him as a speaker in many different contexts. And he's, as I mentioned offline, you know, these, those two are particularly influential to not only my own career, but also with what we're doing at the IOPN, they've contributed a lot of content over the years to us. And it's that passion that really comes through. I think yeah. whether you're a researcher, a practitioner, an educator, whatever, if you're lacking that passion, it doesn't have the impact that it's likely to have. And that is clearly happened to you. And it happens, I think, people that listen to this, you know, we've had a lot of passionate guests over the years and it's it's infectious and highly impactful yeah. as a result. But coming back to you and, and your career, I mean, what, you know, I can see getting people bigger, faster, stronger in the gym. We're putting them through some pretty cool training programs using some nifty bits of kit that's available, particularly for sports scientists, sports physiologists, whether it's, you know, metabolic testing or force plate platforms or or whatever. nutrition is a very different area altogether, isn't it? Obviously, 
now you might answer this question differently. But if you look at it through the lens of, of your younger self, what was the attraction beyond the passion that you had from people like Graham and James and some of the others? Beyond the passion, you would have processed that through your head and thought about it a bit and go, hang on, but this is food on a plate. It's about cooking. It's about, you know, what, what was the real essence there that took you that next step in your career? I'm grinning because it was kind of like it was a little bit of a jump and the net will catch you moment with me because originally the PhD, so you know, Graham had said, right, we, we've potentially got this opportunity in rugby league with Salford Red Devils at the time. And I went over to Manchester. I met the guys there from the club and, and it, was, it was all looking very positive. And then I won't go into the details why it happened, but all of a sudden they couldn't fund the PhD anymore. So that PhD option had disappeared. But then Graham knew John Clark, who now works at England Rugby alongside Eddie Jones and Dennis Betts, the head coach of Widnes Vikings at the time. And they came into the university and, and Graham basically showed them the access that they could gain if they funded a PhD student. And they were like, well, we need a nutritionist. So why don't we try and link that up? We have a PhD student, but he comes in and he's, he's our nutritionist at the same time. And then the phone call from Graham to me, this is looking likely. Is this something that you want to do? So in my head, it was the process of, oh my God, I'm going to a funded PhD. I'm going to be working full time in a rugby club. And I am that failed athlete and I'm in rugby. And how good is this going to be? And it's an opportunity that I wasn't going to let pass. So that was it. I was like, yeah, let's do it. And so I, I didn't really, I guess, decide that I wanted to do a nutrition career. But the way that the PhD navigated itself, it was very evident that I was going to be in the club as a nutritionist. And, you know, I, I'm going to be supporting those players from a nutrition background. And, and I, I'll, I'll never forget it. One of my first presentations at that club, they wanted to know a bit more about protein. And boom, there I was underneath the stadium stairs in their kind of mini little, it's not even a lecture hall, it's just a room, 35 very, very Northwest Cumbrian, Wigan, St. Helens rugby lads, me being the only Southerner in the club. And it was right, bang, go, present on protein. So Graham was I, translating in your ear, was he? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly that. Yeah. And and I remember, you know, I remember really, really being nervous and, and crapping myself, to be honest, because yeah. I was thinking, I, I'm out of my depth here. But I'll never forget Graham say to me, he was like, this is what you wanted, mate. Like, here it is, now go and deliver. And it was a real sink or swim moment. And I thought, well, do you know what? I'm just going to do my best. I'm going to grab it with both hands. And yeah, there was loads of mistakes, loads of errors. You know, I've, I we all make mistakes now and I always learn from them and I look back at them with fond memories because it it really made my career where it is now, I, I believe. And it was such an amazing year because it was a club that were thirsty for it. It was players that were keen to listen. You know, rugby players on a whole are very, very good blokes. Deep down, they're, they're, they're really nice people. And I was in there full of energy giving it everything I could, minimal budget, trying to get everything under the sun for free, picking up the phone to different companies, left, right, centre. And it was just an amazing year where I just learned so much on the ground running like applied. And that is why, you know, my PhD didn't take three years. It took me four and a half years because that year in particular, not much studying happened because it was full on in the club. It, I was in there every day. I was up at 6am on a Saturday in the club at seven. 
and it, it was a pretty crazy year. But Christ, did I learn a lot in in that season there. Well, of course, you know, you you realise right off the bat as soon as you start working in the real world, and by that I mean not the classroom, not the lab, that they're all part of it, but it's not where you practice. And there's a, that you know, that's on this podcast, I'm always banging on about the difference between science and practice and the gap that exists. It's not that they're not related and you need, you need all of these things. But it can be a real challenging situation as you clearly found yourself, and I definitely did, when you find yourself in in a situation where theory is not clearly articulated in the real world and things don't neatly jump from the pages of your textbook into convenient scenarios that you just, you know, regurgitate into practice. It's it's much more than that. And that's that's something I want to explore more in this conversation was something I raised at the beginning of this chat, which was we use the title performance nutritionist that in itself, I think we should describe a bit in a minute and, and delve into, but particularly successful because the word success means different things to different people. And you use that word actually in, in this book that you've written, which we'll get into in a bit more detail too. But it's also worth mentioning that, you know, the listeners of this podcast will be all over the world, not just in the UK. Many listeners will be, they might be sports scientists, S&C coaches, dietitians, athletes with a very significant interest in this, personal trainers and so on, who who are really looking to upskill themselves beyond, and I think you'll understand what I mean, and I'm talking to the listener at this point, by basic nutrition coaching concepts. It is very different at elite sport levels for various reasons. But ultimately, you know, there's a shared interest here, but everyone can arrive at this this place of being a performance nutritionist with different backgrounds. Like for example, we talked a bit offline. I, I came to this after many years of being an SNC coach, personal trainer, you know, people who've listened to the earlier editions of this podcast. I revealed many of my troubles and strifes with my early parts of my career and made huge amounts of stupid mistakes and errors, which is a, actually you, you make a comment about this in your book, you know, they're not really mistakes if you, tried to reflect on them and then learn from them because then they're lessons, right? And that's something I did well. Ultimately, it took me a while, but I got there and I've learned, learned a lot as a result of that. So if we bear in mind that there are different ways of achieving this, and, and sadly, a lot of people do need to understand that, that in each and every country, there are a number of universities. In the UK, we have a lot of universities, and a lot of those universities do offer sports science programs which aren't necessarily going to result in a number of graduates that matches the number of jobs that are available in fact if i pass it back to you briefly before i take us down this next path i want to get into this is something you've mentioned in the book i remember having this conversation with graham and james many years ago it's a useful slap in the face with a wet kipper of the reality of this situation despite our passion and interest we do need to be mindful of the actual reality of this. It's popular. It's becoming increasingly popular to become a performance nutritionist. But remind us, James, of just how many people are trying to get into sports science every year relative to the known roles, at least in professional elite sport. I just did a rough guesstimate, I guess, of the amount of people that are potentially graduating every year. And and I put this in the book. So I, I had a quick look online. So you've got 85 institutes that or universities that offer degree courses related to sports science and nutrition. So that's 85. 
And then if you look at the average kind of classroom, I guess, of that year and say that, you know, it might be 35. And, and I again say this in the book, the year that I did sport nutrition, uh, sports science at Liverpool John Moores, we had over 300 students in our year, over 300. But if we be kind and say that the mean is 35, then you're looking at around 3,000 students each year that graduate from the, their respective universities with a, with a degree. So Just in the UK? Just in the UK. So you've got 3,000 individuals throwing up the mortar caps and, and you know celebrating that day. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget it. In my first or second year at Liverpool John Moores, we had a, a lecturer, Dr. Mark Nesty, and he turned around and he said to, you know, second lesson in, right, put your hand up if you want to work in sport. And boom, everyone's hand in a room shot up. And he said, do, do you want to know the reality? He said, there'll probably be two of you in this room that go and work in sport because it's cutthroat. It's very difficult to get a job. And a lot of you won't have the, the patience or the minerals to just keep going and the persistence to keep applying. And you'll just end up giving up and going and getting a normal job. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh, my God. So how do you then try and stand out from the crowd at that young age in university? And that's where I think coming back to why I went as a mature student, that's where it helped me a little bit because I was, you know, I was registering these points and thinking, right, I've got to be doing something else rather than just go down to the lecture hall, study, put an assignment in and get a 2-1. Something else has to happen on top of that. And that's where I started doing all of the volunteering and, and the experience that I got. It's very, very sobering. It will be to the listeners. There will be a few, I suspect, that are having a bit of a combination of a jaw-dropping, but also a little bit of anxiety might kick in because you're working your ass off to get your degrees, which is necessary. But on the other hand, there's a lot more to it than that. And like you say, there's a lot of people competing for the same roles and you're not going to be hired purely on the basis of the piece of paper that you've got framed on your wall there's a lot more to it and that's something I really want to get into in a minute I know I get a lot of people contacting me on LinkedIn and I'm I'm talking it's it's almost double digits on a weekly basis almost or at least that's how it feels of people some of whom have got PhDs even have the right registrations and so on who are who are just can't understand why they're not getting the roles that they need and or have yet to discover that even if you get a role, if you're lucky enough, if you're one of the lucky few, I say lucky because you make your own luck, of course. There is some blind luck involved, of course, and we can talk about that too. But you, you might only have that role for a short period of time because of just how fluid the mechanisms are behind each, say in football, you know, you, you, the gaffer moves on and he might take his whole team with him and, you know, that's it. You, you, you haven't got a job anymore. It doesn't matter how good you are, you know. So yeah. let's just quickly come back to the essential requirements from your perspective and there will be different points of view on this depending on the country that you're in and the background that you're at and of course whether you're looking to work with elite athletes recreational athletes entirely private practice where maybe some of these things don't matter but sort of the mechanistic requirements to become a performance nutritionist before we start talking about maybe some of the more impressive traits like enthusiasm and being noticed and all those sorts of things. But in your mind, what do you feel are the real key requirements? Bearing in mind, you yourself didn't just start off with a sports nutrition degree, which is case in point. Yeah. 
Yeah, fundamentally, and we can't escape this, you, you have got to have the underpinning knowledge of what a degree programme will, will give you from the fundamentals of sports science, then potentially going on to that master's in either sport physiology or then specialising in nutrition. But you've, you've got to have that underpinning understanding of, of how nutrition can affect the human body. How can it help training adaptation, you know, recovery, injuries, etc. You're not going to get that from a weekend nutrition course online. You're not, you're not going to get that underpinning knowledge of what you might if you come and study on your course. So first and foremost, that's like the first step. You have to have that. But then after that, once you've got that knowledge, you know, if you want to go and work in a League Two football side, do you need a PhD on top of that? Like, I don't know. I don't know whether that's like a, an essential or a desirable right now. But, you know, it's definitely something to, something to be questioned and challenged because in that particular role at that club, do they need someone who's of PhD level or do they just need someone who's got the fundamental knowledge but has got a really excellent ability to get the buy-in of the players so that they understand how nutrition can help performance? And, you know, the UEFA consensus statement was written very recently. Anyone in the world right now can access that open access paper and read it. So surely that's kind of the Bible for, for nutritionists in football clubs at the moment to say, right, here's the UEFA consensus statement, agreement of all of these world leaders. So if I can now apply that and get my squad to believe in it, surely we're going to move in the right direction. I don't think that requires a PhD, but I do think it requires the fundamental undergraduate masters and the, and the knowledge there. And I think that then moves on to kind of the next point that if I look back at what I did when I was snowboarding, I got my level three as a snowboard instructor. And at that level, you start kind of uh, learning around pedagogy and you, you learn how to coach another coach how to coach. So it's not just me teaching you how to snowboard. I would teach you as an instructor how to teach a beginner. And that's part of pedagogy and that's coaching and that's teaching. And me and Chris Rosimus used to talk about this at the FA all the, all the time that, you know, we're in the industry of coaching people to understand what nutrition is and how it can work and how it can benefit them. So I think once you've got that underpinning knowledge, now it's down to you as an individual to, yeah, be thrown in at the deep end at witness but get the buy-in of the boys, get them to understand what you're talking about, get them to trust you, be reliable, build credibility, so that when you're talking about leucine and how important protein is after a rugby game, they get it and they're going to listen to you and they understand it. And that's where I think some people have that missing link, if I'm honest, because you know anyone now, really, undergraduate, master's, sport nutrition, you've got the paper on the wall behind you, and they are, they're, they're questioning me. They're saying, yeah, but I hit all of these desirables and essentials, but I'm still not getting the job. And then it's like, well, how did you come across in the interview? Because if you didn't sell yourself and you didn't come across as enthusiastic and someone that's passionate about the industry, you're probably not going to get that role because you'll get eaten up alive in a rugby club if you can't get that across. I think that's one of the biggest missing links at the moment is be having that experience of being in the applied field and sitting down with an athlete and an athlete saying to you, well, I don't enjoy eating that in the evening or I'm not hungry in the morning. I don't want to eat breakfast. 
you know, there's nothing in the textbook that really tells you how to handle yourself in that situation, but you have to learn and you have to adapt. And I think that's part of the process of what I would term, quote unquote, some of the successful performance nutritionists in our industry. Yeah, you, you mentioned the common problem, which is what everybody faces pretty much at some point in their career, apart from the odd lucky few. How do I get experience if I don't get the job? <laughs> it's difficult, isn't it? But there are ways around that. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's. I love talking about this because I'll give you an example. When I was at Liverpool, John Moore, so we had an applied placement module with St. Helens Rugby League. And that applied module was six weeks long. And the lads used to come in, use the altitude chamber on a Wednesday morning. And that was it. After six weeks, it was done. Placement over, finished. But I said to Graham, I was like, look, do you reckon they would want to carry on for the rest of the season? He was like, of course they would. You know, they bring their rehab lads in and they're, they're in the altitude, they're training the boys. They'd snap your hand off to do that. So I said to Graham, if you're okay with it, can I carry this on for the rest of the year? And he was like, yeah, that's your call. So I then put it to the head coach and the head of S&C and they loved it. And they were like, yeah, we would absolutely love that. And then I took the opportunity to say, look, I'm really enjoying working with the lads. Is there any chance I can come down to the club on a Saturday morning and just help out, just get involved? as an S&C. And they were like, yeah, no problem. So I used to get up at six or seven in the morning, get on the bike, cycle to the station, train from Liverpool to St. Helens. And I used to spend Saturday mornings at St. Helens Rugby League. Where did that stem from? That was all part of a placement that the university had that after six weeks didn't have to carry on. But I thought, well, I've got the opportunity to be working with professional athletes here. And I knew then at the end of the season that if I turned around to Matty Daniels as the head of S&C and the, the captain of the squad, you know, is there any chance I could get a, re a reference from you? Just a bit of a testimonial so that when I apply for jobs in the future, I can attach that into the application. They were like, yeah, mate, no problem at all. And then that's where I then applied to Saracens and did an S&C placement at Saracens. And that's how you build it up. And I challenge a lot of the people that I mentor now and I say to them, look, are you telling me that if you didn't go out in your local town or your local city to all of the amateur clubs, whether that's rugby, football, boxing, netball, hockey, whatever it might be, athletics, if you didn't speak to the chairman of that club and say, hey, look, I'm a Senar nutritionist, I've got a degree, you know, I'm registered in this field, I'd love to just work with your 800 metre runners for six weeks and just educate them on what nutrition is. I don't think there's many people that would turn that down. Yes, you might have to do six weeks of free volunteering, but what you would get in six weeks' time is genuine experience of where you've developed and helped 800-metre runners get better. And I just don't think people are willing to do that anymore. I think, no, I, you know... I completely agree, mate. I've had the same in my... I mean, go back another decade, but... I never, I never applied for a job. Uh, people just don't believe me when I say I never applied for a job. I had to go and create my own opportunities. And when I was toying with the idea of transitioning between an S and C coach who had acquired, gotten into center at this point, I was still very. This is ten years ago now, and was experimenting with: Do I really want to be a full-time performance nutritionist? A bit of a private practice going on the side. I was lucky to work with a number of people privately. I decided to set up some coffee meetings with people at various sports clubs and teams and ended up having a great cup of coffee at London Scottish at the time, London Scottish Rugby, and had the same thing you just discussed. I said, look, we haven't got a budget. We do not have a budget for a nutritionist. 
this was quite a long time ago where it wasn't so common to have a performance nutritionist at a team. I said, look, I, I live nearby. Why don't I just come in for the rest of this? It was like halfway through the season. I'll come in, I'll help out a bit, give me some free kit and, you know, I'll come, I'd like to come watch some games and let me show you what I can do. And let's see if together we can persuade somebody to maybe, you know, fund half a day a week or, or something. They went for it and uh, nobody paid me initially, but I was doing my own marketing and that has a cost. Yeah. And that cup of coffee ended up leading me into a situation where, like yourself, I got a good good reference for it. I didn't get paid or anything, but I had a good time, met yeah. some great players, like you say, learned a lot. And he then introduced me to the head of S&C at London Irish and I got my first paid gig as the nutritionist London Irish, which was a two-year thing for me. And that's exactly how it started. Nobody offered me that. I had to go get it. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning this is because not every college or university does placements. Often a placement can result in that role being replaced by the next student now that somebody's graduated. And I don't want people to feel that those opportunities, they're all taken up and they're all dried up. Because what is really mind-boggling, James, is there's still loads of pro teams out there that don't have nutritionists it's yeah. amazing yeah. and yeah. it might just be have a cup of coffee with somebody and actually it might happen for you maybe you and i can inspire people to increase the coffee trade a bit around these clubs <laughs> true story right I, i've lived in Bista for a year and a half now 20 minutes north of oxford when we moved here i went straight into Bista boxing club and i just said you know who, who runs the club and the guy at the counter is, is me what do you want you know, amateur boxing club. So I said to him, hey, look, look, I'm a nutritionist. I work in the industry. I've worked with a couple of boxers. I'm just wondering whether there's any scope here to work with a couple of your fighters that might want to make weight a little bit safer and, and more effectively. And he said, mate, he said, you're exactly what we need. You're the missing link right now. That was 18 months ago. And over the last 12 months, I've spent that time working with two of his boxers in the club on the doorstep. Now, that cost me about £2 in petrol to drive down there and, and have the courage to open up the door and have a nice conversation with the owner of the club. That resulted in some paid work. It's doable, and there's a lot of amateur clubs out there and amateur teams that I think would bite your hand off. And I actually say this to some of the people I help out. that So, okay, I'm at Bristol Bears now, and you know I'm supporting the professional rugby players there. But... Even if I was at Bista Rugby Club and it was an amateur rugby club, some of the messages and most of the education and the content would be the same because it's rugby. They're playing the sport of rugby. They have to do 80 minutes of rugby. The demands might be a little bit different in terms of more intense at Bristol, more metres covered. But if I've got 120 kilo proper, the amateur club and 120 kilo proper Bristol, and they're both trying to drop five kilo of fat, the messages that I would say would probably be very similar. So yes, one's a professional setup and the other one's amateur. But if I was interviewing someone now to come in and help and help me at the club, and I had someone that had worked with amateur athletes, but they could give me genuine, passionate experiences of where, yeah, I've helped a youth athlete do this, or I've done this, I've done that. And they could give me that evidence that I would much rather employ that person than someone that has got the masters, maybe the PhD, but doesn't have any experience. Exactly. And every single 
champion that exists out there at some point started off as an amateur or, you know, and you just don't know. And it's so, there's so much opportunity that exists out there. There's so much here. We could spend an hour or we've only got about half an hour left here, but we could spend that time just talking about these things, which of course we'd love to, I know. But I think a take home there is that you you shouldn't limit your options only to aspiring to work at a Premier League football club, which might not last as long as you think, because as soon as the gaffer and his team moves, as I mentioned earlier, it might all change anyway. But those opportunities are big. Now, something I, I think is important is that the, of the positions that are available in pro elite sport, a lot of them are part-time. Yes, there's some full-time roles. There's certainly more of them than when I started out. But you also need to be prepared to have your own consultancy and have that mixed type of clients within your practice, which is great because it will develop different skill sets and so on and so forth. But that's where, particularly since this pandemic has started, the interest in particularly fairly high-level amateur sport like triathlons, marathon running, and so on, is something that is being embraced by a lot of people who do want extra help and support. But like the example you just gave, it might require a conversation or a talk, something where you put yourself into a situation where people go, actually, I could really do with this person's help, but they don't realize it yet. And there's a lot of these people around, whether they're coaches, like you pointed out, could be a triathlon coach rather than a boxing coach. That's exciting because you've got a lot of people who are obsessed with cycling, triathlon. You've actually got a bit of money to spend as well. They're everywhere. So private practice, just quickly, because I know that's something you've also done as well. What, you know, just tell us about your thoughts about that, given that it's not all about elite pro sport. In fact, some of our listeners will be, I have no interest in working for a football team or rugby or whatever. Yeah. The full-time role in, in nutrition is super important, especially in some of my background in at Warrington and, and Witness. And I think the benefit of, of being full-time is 100% there. And if I had my choice, I would probably work full-time, full-time for one club and and just you're all in and you're there because it's a tough job. It is a tough job, especially when you've got to look after senior men, senior women, academy. You know, I I think there's three separate full-time jobs there personally. Yeah. So I think the clubs that are investing in the full-time practitioner, paying them the wage that they should be earning and giving them the holiday that they deserve and the time off with family, I, I think they are the kind of, unicorns if you like they are the the dream roles but having said that the reality is which you mentioned earlier there's still clubs and there's still organizations that either don't have a nutritionist or they consult someone one or two days a week or it's the part-time model as a nutritionist as a practitioner then you you have to make a decision then don't you do you just rely on the two day a month model to bring in your income or maybe three day a week part-time and try and live off of that? Or do you bring in some of your own stuff? And look, the way I do it is not the only way to do it. And I'm sure there's better ways out there to do it as well. But I've definitely got a blend of both where I have got my own business. I've got my own practice. And that's allowed me to work with some really interesting and unique case studies with individuals, whether that's a dog walker that has lost 15 kilos of fat or whether it's Rocky Field in over five years where we follow him from a body composition case study point of view. But all of those experiences for me 
all feed into each other because what I learn with one person about cravings or, you know, different snack ideas. Yeah, of course I can use some of that and educate some of the rugby players about it as well. So I've got a blend of both. And for me, it works. It works brilliantly and I, I enjoy it. But I do think the full-time paid position is is probably the one to go after if you want to get the maximum possible benefit of having that individual in the organisation. But be prepared for the fact that you might not get that role yet. And if that's the case, you know, do work on those opportunities to get that experience with maybe some private clients. Because then that will, of course, give you those skill sets to excel in your role when as and when you get a full-time role and or demonstrate that in your interviews or on your resume or you know at the end of the day you need to be confident don't you as a practitioner and I think that's to go back to that point I made earlier like how do you get experience if no one gives you the role well maybe you chip away at it you know there is no one-size-fits-all approach to this unfortunately yeah definitely and it's the blend of both is it does have its benefits 100% Look, just from experience, I don't mind sharing this because I definitely had a few slap wrist moments in my career over the last couple of years where, you know, you're working full time at an organisation, but on a Sunday morning, I wanted to get up at 5am to do a nutrition programme for a boxer because I was passionate about it. I wanted to help a boxer make weight safely. Was it the right thing to do? Was I breaching a contract? you know, by the letter of the law, I probably was breaching a contract. But in my eyes, what I did on a Sunday morning at 5am was my time. And if I wanted to get up and work at the weekend, surely that's up to me to do that. But Mm. it's a very interesting area of discussion that I, I could talk about, you know, quite passionately. But the blend of both, if the payment and the full time role at an organization is not going to be there, then of course, that blend of both, we almost have to do it, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah. And look, it, I'm, I, this is a conversation we could have for hours because there's a lot there. And maybe maybe we'll do another follow-on to discuss some of these areas. I think it's certainly interesting. But as we mentioned, you've, you've written this book and, you know, look, we don't have much time left here, but I do want to quickly, you know, you're, well, your own career is is rich with experience and is fascinating in itself, which is why we've spent so much time talking together about these things. But you've got this book. The Performance Nutritionist, Insights, Reflections, and Advice from Practitioners Working in Elite Sport. And of course, everyone should read it. I've really enjoyed it. It's great to see one or two of our old graduates of our old program go on, get their PhDs and so on. But So it was nice to read about them. But I said this to you before we started recording, I personally found this helpful, actually. Not just your own transparency and honesty in, in some of your areas that you, you know you, you you've had to learn from making mistakes and lessons and so on but also the frustrations and so on that exist out there but also the differences of opinion that we all have as practitioners is is just really priceless stuff in this book so whether you're a wannabe performance nutritionist or your early year or or mid to even later in your career like myself there's a huge amount to benefit from that so I want people to go out and read that. We're we're definitely going to embrace this as a recommended reading on our course. So I think I can enthusiastically recommend it right now, having read it myself now. But I just wanted to quickly tackle this question that I raised at the beginning of what does successful even mean, James? Because that term is a difficult one, isn't it? How do you see successful and 
maybe summing up the various people, the great practitioners that you've got in this book, is there sort of a combined answer there you can come up with too? Yeah, it's an amazing question, isn't it? Because when I asked some people to, to be in this book, there were actually some practitioners that turned around and said they, they didn't want to do it because they didn't feel that they were successful in their career at the moment, which I thought was amazing because I looked at them and, and I would say, you are successful. What does successful mean? What is the definition of it? I think that's, we all interpret it in a different way, don't we? But I look at the front cover of the book, you know, you've got Tottenham Hotspurs, Everton, Aston Villa, Team GB, England Football, Sky, Munster. Like at some point, all of those individuals applied for an interview and were successful in their interview and they got the job. So there's an element of, of success there. Whether we want to agree or not, they were successful in obtaining the job that they applied for. So in my eyes, in their individual career, they are having a successful career. It's amazing how many people in the interviews were quite humble in saying, look, I'm doing all right, but I'm not the best out there. And I think that was what's quite nice about our industry is that we do appreciate and respect that actually once you understand the Dunning-Kruger and you come back down to the, the bottom again, you you do realise, yeah, you know, we're all we're all moving in the right direction and we support each other to do a lot better. But there are a lot of more successful people out there, however you want to define that term. But it was really nice interviewing and asking those people that one question and, and seeing what the answer came back was. But I think for me, they are successful because where they are in their careers, you know, the Premier League is the best footballing league in the world. So if you're working in the Premier League and you're head of nutrition at one of those clubs, to me, you're doing all right. You've done something there that makes you successful. <laughs> Absolutely. That's why I bang on about context all the time. You know, it, it just depends what you mean by it. Some people are motivated by financial gain and, I'd agree with you. I mean, there's no way you get those roles if you're not good in many different ways. You've been successful in your academic career. You know, we both know how hard it is to to acquire, you know, your masters and PhDs and and whatnot. That's that's in itself a successful outcome. Getting past all the different people that competed for that job and impressing experienced people interviewing you that, that want to say, do you know what? I'd like you to come work with us. That's success. And working in a team where you're working with athletes and players who, you know, those teams remain in the Premier League. They remain at the top end of that league, for example. That is a form of success. And yes, some of them will make a pretty decent living out of it too financially. And that is a form of success. And some people will take greater or lesser aspects of that to build their own version of success. But I think it's something that that most people can be is, is successful in their career as long as they understand what that term means and, and will they get satisfaction out of it? I, I know we've both wrestled with that in our careers. And yeah. I think at the end of the day, if you wake up loving what you do and you can go to work, impact everyone in a way that puts a smile on your face and helps them achieve what they want to do. And it's just a win-win situation. That's a huge amount of success in my eyes. Yeah, exactly that. And there's an answer here. I won't, I won't ruin who it's from, but I, I asked the question, what makes a successful performance nutritionist? And the answer here was the answers in the name. A performance nutritionist is someone who uses nutrition to improve performance 
although it sounds relatively simple, there's a whole host of work and thought that goes into achieving that. The concept is relatively simple. If you can make someone faster, fitter, stronger or fresher just by changing what they've eaten, then you're doing your job. And surely all of us in our practice, if we if we are not doing that to some degree, then we're doing something wrong. But I think we would all agree, especially the 10 that I interviewed, at some point in their career, they have improved somebody's performance. So if that's your definition of success, then you've been successful. You know, a success might be actually just obtaining your master's. But I think what's the key to success is identifying the goals and the steps and the hurdles that you you need to go on to achieve your vision and your aspirations in life. Because then if one of them is get your PhD and then you get your PhD, you've been successful. Well done. You can pat yourself on the back. I think that one answer probably encapsulates it. Uh, yeah, no, you've you done a brilliant job. And I remember you quoted an Eddie Hearn quote, didn't you? Did, what was that again? Yeah, it's an amazing podcast and it, quite simply, no passion, no point. And I, I think you you mentioned it briefly there that, you know, when I, I, I have to get up early to drive to Bristol Bears on a Tuesday, why do I do it? Because I love it. I absolutely love being in that club. I love the environment. I love the players, the, the staff. And if I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't do it. But I'm passionate about it and I'm passionate about rugby and I'm passionate about improving the provision of nutrition at that club. And for me, that's fundamentally what it boils down to, isn't it? That if you don't enjoy nutrition and you don't enjoy working with professional athletes, it's probably not the industry for you. You know, go work a nine to five. Thanks, James. I wish we could keep talking. I'm personally really, really enjoying it. But like all good things, it must come to an end. And I think this is the perfect place for me to remind folks to to get your book, listen to our previous podcast. You're well worth following in many ways. You contribute in lots of different ways to the professions. Thank you for that. And I will link to as many of those things as I possibly can in, in the show notes. But I just wanted to thank you for your time today, James. I know you're busy and you've got your family and all that stuff going on, but there's a lot of people listening who will be a little bit better off as a result of this conversation, I'm sure. So if they want to follow you, what's the best way of getting in touch? Yeah, Twitter, James Moorhen, Instagram, Moorhen Performance, and then the website is moorhenperformance.com as well. Happy to say that if they go on Amazon and type in the performance nutritionist, they will find that book and yeah, the aim of the game is to rise up the Amazon ranks. <laughs> yeah, we'll go for it. Well, hopefully we can help. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Much no appreciate it.